right. Uh, welcome to day 224 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7 through chapter 9, verse 12, Proverbs 19, 23 through chapter 20, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 35. Uh, I'm a little under the weather today, so we'll see how this goes. Hopefully I won't do anything too gross directly into the microphone. Um, but, you know, a, a guy can dream. Okay, let's go ahead and start looking at Ecclesiastes 7. So I like how this today's reading starts because you're kind of like, oh, I'm going to get a nice proverb. That's what I've been missing from this wisdom book. Um, a good name is better than precious ointment. Okay, okay. And the day of death than the day of birth, right? Like, And this is this, you know, pessimistic outlook of Kohelet. Okay. Um, again, I stress the genre of this book as pessimistic, uh, speculative wisdom that where, where you're tracking with an author's thoughts and struggles from an issue. So you can't really just like isolate a verse from it and say, here is divine truth. No, like what you're doing is you're being shown the, like, the inner workings of his mind. Um, and, you know, we've already seen that he, he like, envies at one point even a stillborn child, right? Because a, such a child doesn't see the miseries of this world, but but goes directly to, to their rest. Um, and so other ways of putting this idea here, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Verse 4 says, the heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Okay, so it's like the, he's just this you know, in a very pessimistic mindset here. And um, I think we kind of get an idea as to like his wavelength actually by that very ambiguous phrase in verse three, where he says, sorrow is better than laughter. But then he says, for by sadness of face, uh, uh, sorry, can't talk today, but for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And, uh, you know, it's not immediately apparent what that means. What I think it means is that you know, you're not living in denial. If you want to have a heart that is glad, then you need to like be in tune with the fact that this world stinks, you know, and, and so like you're not going to be disappointed. So um, it's kind of like this paradoxical thing, right? It's like by not being happy, you will be happy. Um, you will be satisfied. You will you will understand the, the way of the world and you're not going to be like those fools who are celebrating or those fools who are happy. Um, yeah, so uh, you also get this very vivid image of this in verse 6, as the crackling of thorns under a pot. So think about like picking up some dried out thorns and using them as your as your fire kindling and just the, the you know the the sound of them burning so and and that's what the laughter of fools sounds like um, and then he goes on to say uh, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart now I think it's interesting to note to or to ask the question uh, whose heart is getting corrupted here right because typically you would think of it as like the bribe is corrupting the briber, maybe the one who receives it, maybe justice in general. But I think uh, in light of the parallel line in the first part of the verse, oppression drives the wise into madness. The idea that of the bribe corrupting the heart, this is the, the wise who is observing um, injustice happening, right? This is the person who has to see this happening. And it, it, and so, again, think of, think of like the idea here that, that um, 
the this wise person uh, who who would be happy, but now he's got wisdom, and because he's got wisdom, he sees the world the way that it is. So wisdom actually doesn't bring mirth and rejoicing and stuff. It it brings sadness and pessimism, at, at least in the eyes of Kohelet. I think it is important to note that there are some nuggets of kind of more plain Jane wisdom here as well, such as anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Um, So, you know, don't really need to delve into those that much. But here's an interesting one. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Okay, because what has Kohelet discovered? That uh, all is toil all is misery, that your work is futile, um, uh, the end of the wicked is like the end of the righteous. And so don't look back at some like former time thinking that it was better. Um, You know, if you're wise, you know that it's always been like this and the world will always be like this. Um, It is not from wisdom that you ask this, right? This is what what Kohelet's search for wisdom has brought him. uh, again, just want to underscore, this is not the voice of God in Scripture we are hearing. This is the voice of a man who is, who is um, you know, on a journey and has not yet arrived. Uh, by the way, today is spring break, and so my kids are home with me, and I've got my daughter Katie here on the couch with me, so... Um, I don't know if she's making noise yet, but so I, people have been talking to me like, hey, you're always saying in the podcast that yeah, there's noise in the background. We don't hear it. We don't hear it. So now this is a little bit of a uh, of a running uh, source of amusement for me. <laughs> like I keep on talking about this, but nobody actually hears anything. Um, maybe you'll have to, maybe I'll make it a game to figure out when I'm bluffing. How about that? Okay. Well, Uh, verses 13 and 14 have to be taken together. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Okay, and you're like, well, what has God made crooked? Well, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Okay, got that. When it's prosperous, that's my opportunity to have joy. And in the day of adversity, okay, so when things aren't so prosperous, what should I consider? God has made the one as well as the other so that men may not find out anything that will be after him. Okay, so uh, in other words, um, both things are from the Lord, and you have actually very little control over whether or not you will be prosperous or whether or not there will be adversity. And you can't say that after you're gone, things are going to be good. You can't say after you're gone, things are going to be bad. God makes both. And um, the thing that we, of course, have a harder time with is is with the day of adversity, and um, and that is. Uh, uh, and, and that is, you know, what God has made crooked. Who can make that straight? Uh, if you hear some crumpling, Katie, who again is my autistic daughter, her thing today is she's carrying around an empty bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. There she goes. And I'm pretty sure you can hear that. So if there's crumpling in the background, it's because t- Katie insists on sitting with Daddy, and she insists on having her Cool Ranch Doritos, and uh, Daddy's got to get this thing recorded. So, okay. <laughs> In my vain life, okay, he's he's speaking, he's spoken this way in chapter 6, verse 12 already, and he'll do it again in today's reading. I have seen everything. There's a righteous who perishes in his righteous righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. So there's that classical problem, right? The wicked prospering, the righteous suffering. And here, this leads him to this moral apathy 
view, which again is not what scripture recommends, but it is what Koheleth recommends at this point. Don't be overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise, right? Like it's it's trouble. Don't don't bother. Don't be too concerned with that, especially with getting with what getting really wise brings you, what what it has brought me, Koheleth. Um, why should you destroy yourself? But on the other hand, don't be overly wicked. Okay, so there is some stuff today about not being wicked, not doing bad. It's not like he's it's not like he's recommending saying, oh, you might as well just do injustice and be a horrible person and and ignore God. Um it's more of like pessimistic towards the positive outcomes. Um but um so don't be either one. Uh, why should you die before your time? That's you know if you're if you're um, if you strive in either of those directions, uh, you might you might shorten your life. And again, life's not that great, Kohelet would said. But since you're here, you might as well not. Uh, you know, he, at no point is Kohelet like recommending suicide, right? Like he's he's um, which is I think very interesting, um, given how depressed he sometimes sounds. But um, you might as well, you know, be here for the ride because you don't know how it's going to get. But, you know, don't be too surprised if things turn out crummy for you is Kohelet's reasoning. So you've got the extreme good and the extreme bad. And he's saying, don't go for either of them. And he says, it is good that you should take hold of this. So this one on this side, the extreme good, and of that on that side. And it's actually the same word in Hebrew, this and that. It's ze and ze. Um um, uh, don't withhold, uh, uh, you know, take hold of both of those for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That is, a, a, in other words, you'll kind of like, we'll, we'll, we'll navigate between them. You'll avoid both extremes. Um, okay. Some more musings on wisdom. You get a, a good verse here for, uh, you know, he's straight thinking about this, right? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay. Again, he does seem to be more concerned in today's reading about wickedness and avoiding it than he does um, elsewhere. Um, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Okay, so don't be so concerned with what other people are saying about you. I think that this is very good advice, actually. Um, And when you do hear it, you know, all you're getting, you know, there might be some wisdom in that. Of course, you want to hear people's rebuke, but don't be don't be overly concerned, like take it to heart, take it, take it personally necessarily. Uh, besides, and he adds this, you know that many times you've cursed others. So for as much trash as people might talk about you, think about the fact that you've probably talked trash about people in the past. Um, all this I've tested by wisdom. I will be wise, but it was far from me. It was, it was so that wisdom always seemed so elusive, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And so I turned my heart to know and to seek out wisdom. And now he's going to talk about its rareness. Okay. So he says in his search for wisdom, um, what he found was um, something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, right? Her hands are like handcuffs. Uh, one kind of things like maybe he's talking about something like the adulterous woman in Proverbs chapter seven, um, 
and he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Again, as I said, Koheleth is at no point recommending wickedness to us. He's at no point recommending sin. It, again, the, the pessimism, the apathy is more towards the good than it is, um, you know, acceptance of evil or something like that. So, uh, but now here he says something that is definitely going to great many of us the wrong way, and I think rightfully so. So, behold, this is what I found, says Kohelet, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, right, to find the way the world actually is, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found that is wise or virtuous, okay, but a woman among all these I have not found. Oh, gosh. Now, I don't think there's any way around it. This is Kohelet being a little bit sexist here. And again, this is not the voice of Scripture. This is tracking with a man who has fallen in his opinions. And just like we don't adopt uncritically the opinions of Job or his friends, uh, we do not adopt uncritically the voice of Kohelet, and his, especially on his journey, right? When he's on his journey for seeking wisdom and getting frustrated with it. So I think that's important to note. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, just a few, uh, um, two things, uh, I think also bear saying here, it's not as if he's making out man to like males to be a lot better than women, even though he, this is, you know, does very much seem to be a sexist comment. Um, cause right. Like one in a thousand is not like a lot better than none. Okay. So even among men, there's only one in a thousand. So there's that. And then I'd also just say, you know, if we if uh, think about all the contrary examples in Scripture, whether it be Tamar or whether it be Deborah or Hudla, um, I always forget if it's Hudla or Hulda. I think it's Hulda, uh, or Abigail, right? Who's who's much wiser than her husband, whose name means fool, Nabal, right? And even even wiser than King David on that day. Um, and then uh, you know you've got. Um, and then in the New Testament, the woman disciples who are more faithful oftentimes than Jesus's male disciples, the primary witnesses to the resurrection. You got all those um, really great women mentioned in Romans 16 that we looked at the other day. So it's not it's not as if um, you know this is the opinion of Scripture on this matter. So I think that's just it's just important to kind of acknowledge um, some of those things. Okay, um, then. Um, uh, uh, chapter eight begins with a little bit of a, again, amusing, amusing on wisdom, and then goes into this thing about kings. Okay, so um, how one should relate to kings. Okay, uh, so keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So this seems to be an acknowledgement of um, the Davidic kingdom. Okay, and, and you know, even in the time of Saul, Saul is the one appointed by God, which is why David doesn't stretch out his hand against him. So this is kind of like a common way of viewing kings and kingship, um, and um, be not hasty to go from his presence. So if you're granted an audience, don't don't seek to get out of there too soon. You know, it's, it's a good thing to be there. Um, but then you get almost like a very Romans 13-ish thing, remember, which talked about um, the legitimate use of government and rulers and things, right? How it restrains evil. So don't take your stand in an evil cause. Remember, Kohelet is not recommending evil. 
uh, he does whatever he pleases. The king does what he what seems right to him, and and it should. And generally, you know, a king will be a punisher of those who do evil. Um, his word is supreme. Whatever he says goes. Um, so you're kind of like at his mercy. Uh, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, um, and the wise of heart will know the proper time in the just way. Um, and uh, and then, but then he kind of mixes this with um, like uh, the inevitability of fate. You know, you don't know how things are going to turn out for you, so you should conduct your way before kings like this. So you don't have power to retain your spirit. You don't have the power over death. Right? We're all going to die. There's no discharge from war. If he sends you out, you're going to go, and who knows how that's going to go for you. Um, but wickedness does not deliver. One thing we do know, wickedness does not deliver those who are given to it. Um, and then he says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, his wisdom journey, when man had power over man to his hurt. And that's one way of describing kingship, right? Man having power over man. Uh, then I saw the wicked buried, okay? And so he's musing on the end of life, like looking on the light, back on the life of someone who was wicked. And this is a person who, uh, and we saw this, lots of this in Kings, we saw this in Amos and in Hosea, they used to go in and out of the holy place, okay? They were religious people, even though they were wicked. Uh, they were praised in the city. Um, and here you have this thing that the Psalms are often struggling with. The sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. Um and the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So, um, uh, or because of that, right? Like as a result, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So because of the delay in judgment, like God doesn't just zap us as long as, as soon as we do wrong, people just continue in their evil. Okay. And the, the, the sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Um, yet, and, and now here, you know, you see, start to see some real insight shining through, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. So there is this, this hope, even though in the midst of all this pessimism about how things go, if you're overly righteous, as he said earlier today, nevertheless, um, the, uh, it will, will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, even if he doesn't know how that spells out or how it spells out in this life. But it will not be well with the wicked, um, uh, he doesn't fear God. Okay. Um, uh, an, another vanity here in chapter 8, verse 14, a vanity that place, takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. So here now we have the righteous suffering the consequences that we would hope a wicked person would get. And vice versa also happens, which has already been acknowledged. The wicked people, uh, to them, it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This is a, a theme, again, of the Psalms. We see this is one of the primary issues in Job that is getting struggled with, and it tempers some of the more optimistic statements of the book of Proverbs. Um, and so I commend joy. You should, if this is the way it is, pursue joy. There's nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go down, will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So if you can find joy in what you do, 
uh, do it because you shouldn't just wait for your for 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 vindication for your own righteousness because uh, it might not happen. I applied my heart to know wisdom, he says, and I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that he has done under the sun, right? So we we can't even comprehend um, all these things. It's, these enigmas are too big for us. How much man may toil in seeking and yet will not find it out. Um, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So the futility of wisdom. Okay. All right, then in chapter 9, um, he's standing back, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Uh, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both or are before him. I think what he means here is how how God um, is going to deal, right? Is it going to be deal in a way that is good or is bad, uh, love or, or hate? Okay, interesting use of those terms here, but I think that's what he's getting at. Because then he goes on and he says, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, him who sacrifices, him who doesn't sacrifice, um, the good, the sinner, the one who swears, the one who shuns an oath. Um, and this is... Uh, his evaluation of this, this is an evil in all that is under the sun. Or, again, evil is not always a strongly moral thing in the Old Testament. Maybe a calamity, a, a tragedy. Um, um, the, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live at, and after they go to the dead. Now, we've already seen how he's kind of like, well, it's, it's you know, he, he envies in some way the stillborn child. Um, you know, he prefers the house of mourning to the house of mirth. Um, but now here he, he does extol life. Okay. So, um, he's conflicted. There is tension here. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward and the memory of them is forgotten. But even there, notice how pessimistic living is, right? What do the living know? Well, they know they're going to die. Okay. Um, and so now, um, again, Koheleth has already said, like, I recommend joy to you in all your toil. That's what you should pursue. And then he kind of starts doubling down on that. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. God has already approved what you do. Uh, let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Um, all the days of your vain life. Okay, because your life is vain, like this is the most you can hope for. And obviously this is a good thing. It is good to enjoy the lives God gave us. Um, but as much as you can, you know, practice these things. Um, that's what my wisdom has taught me thus far, says Kohelet. That is your portion and your toil. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might, um, because this is going to be your only chance to do it. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, in the grave, to which, let me remind you, you are going, right? The living, what they know is they are going to die. Um, and then finally, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, right? And all this stuff, right? But rather it's time and chance that happened to them all. So the people who deserve the good stuff aren't necessarily getting the good stuff. Man, and man does not know his time. Um, the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon him. So this is 
this is uh, once again kind of throwing up his hands to chance and fate. All right, let's go now to Proverbs 19, verse 23, through chapter 20, verse 4. Uh, this begins with an interesting poetic thing, because uh, remember how um, Hebrew poetry is often in parallel lines? Well, here you have actually a triple, okay? The fear of Yahweh leads to life. Whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm, okay? Um, notice the much more optimistic take on things than Kohelet. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that meme, but um, there's a like a picture of a little boy, like looks like he's dressed up for church in Sunday school. He's got a nice button-down shirt and a little bow tie, and he's like all oh, this handsome guy with a big smile on his face. And then next to it is a picture a couple years later when he's in like high school and he's all goth and he has like his his hair dyed black and like this huge, you know, uh, apathetic uh, look on his face. And, you know, and, and it's like over the first one, it's like, this is Proverbs. And then on the, over the other one, it's like Ecclesiastes. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I love that this image is, is classic. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Like all he's doing is, is, is eating, right? But he's so lazy, he can't even uh, bring the food to his mouth. Um, strike a scoffer and the simple... Uh, will learn prudence, okay? Um, reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. So, uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd rather be, I think the contrast here is between striking and being reproved. And so if you're a man of understanding, the way in which you gain in instruction is through reproof, whereas if you're a scoffer, the way you gain instruction is through striking. Um he who does violence to his father chases and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Pretty easy to figure out that one. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from words of knowledge. Again, pretty standard fare in Proverbs. A worthless witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. Okay, like, that's his sustenance. Nom, 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 right? Wants to... Um, that's, that's, that's what he... Eats, that's what he, he goes after and works for. Uh, condemnation is ready for scoffers, a beating for the backs of fools. Um, for, pretty simple. I think this is a good illustration, by the way, of another he Hebrew poetry um, uh, technique, which is called ellipsis, where uh, something that is a word that is said in the first line is omitted in the second, it is elided. Um, so notice the word ready is elided from the, uh, from the second line. Condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating ready for the back of fools. Okay. A wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So, you know, uh, this is part of scripture's um, fairly textured, um, shall we say, teaching on alcohol consumption, not that it is categorically wrong for anyone in every place, in every instance, but know that overconsumption leads to, um, leads to, to ruin, uh, leads to folly. Uh, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Perhaps this might be similar to what we read in Ecclesiastes 8 today, okay, in this advice for going before a king. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. So that's a mark of the fool. Um, if I'm constantly quarreling with people, getting in spats, 
Um, that might be a mark and likely is of my own foolishness. And finally, the sluggard, here we have another one about the sluggard, does not plow in the autumn, and so at harvest he goes and he seeks food, but he has nothing. Okay, let's go now to 1 Corinthians seven seventeen through 35. Okay, so Paul is um, in a, here in a chapter, broadly speaking, about uh, relationships. Remember, this is... Um, <clears throat> This is uh, something that they wrote to him. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and we're apparently taking it in all these crazy ways, and Paul wants to give a more nuanced, or um, uh, fully-orbed Christian kingdom of God-informed way of thinking about romantic relationships. <clears throat> and it's not that clear immediately how this first paragraph um, fits into that context, but it will be when you get to the second paragraph of today. So let's take them in turn. So the first paragraph, um, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Okay. So not everyone is the same. Not everyone will pursue singleness. Not everyone will pursue marriage and, uh, all other types of stuff too. He gives other examples in this paragraph of what that looks like. Now, in terms of like determining what God is calling one to, that can be a tricky business, you know, and I think we need to tread a little bit softly and realize that there is a degree of subjectivity in in that. Like, I mean, there's some things, right? Like think of First Thessalonians 4, um, uh, this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, there's something the Lord is calling me to, right? But in terms of like these specific life decisions, decision type stuff, I think there's a lot more wiggle room there. And I think there's more than one way that a person can please the Lord. But if we're trying to discern like what kind of life has God called me to, we want to look at a bunch of different things. And just to name a few, though not all of them, um, you know, what What do my circumstances right now look like? What do my responsibilities now look like? Okay, and if I have ambition to be somewhere else, uh, to do something else, um, I typically will counsel about like, you know, you want, you want to definitely take into account three things to discern gifting and direction from the Lord, such as, do I have the desire to do this thing? Okay, uh, is it something... That, that I want to do, right? Like think of like uh, if a man uh, seeks the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, okay? That, that kind of thing. Um, but then also, have I done it and is there fruit in it? Is there, uh, is, is, does this bring about good for the kingdom of God? Doesn't mean I have to be awesome or, or an expert. We do want to grow in our skills and our abilities. Uh, but that's, you know, really like the second thing that I would, um, that I would, I would, I would um, counsel. Like, is there a desire? Is there fruit? And then third, um, seek the counsel of people who are godlier than you, who love you, who care about you, and who know you. And what do they think? And this can be applied to all sorts of things, including uh, romantic relationships. Okay, so. Um, yeah, uh, so this is my rule in all the churches, that people should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to, to him. And so, remember I said, like, circumstances are a big part of that. And so, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. And I, indeed, I had to look that one up because I'm like, well, how do you do that? <laughs> and indeed, it is a thing. It's not perfect. I don't know what kind of uh, end results you got, but um, that's definitely was a thing. Um, 
asked, was anyone at the time of his call circumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And again, remember how contextualized all this is, right? Like that wasn't Paul's advice to Timothy, but there was a specific thing that God called him to do. So these things are relative. There's some subjectivity in them. Um, uh, But, you know, God's made you a certain way. He's planted you in certain circumstances. Don't try to like think that your conversion means you're just going to modify everyone who you are. Like if he saved you and you're this kind of person, um, you know, obviously fight sin in your life and seek to align yourself more with the will of God. But maybe God, you know, has made you and given you a certain life for a certain reason so that you can serve him in the context of that. Um, um, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So don't be obsessed about whether you're circumcised or not. What really counts, uh, as Paul delineated in the early chapters of Romans, I think he talks about that, about that in chapter two, um, you know, it's, it's the one who does the law that's truly circumcised of the heart. And that's what matters before God. Um, um, were you a bond servant when called? Okay, uh, do not be concerned about it. So uh, this is an interesting one, right? And this is the first time that Paul t- will touch on, on this issue of slavery. And we've talked about it in the Old Testament context. We will talk about it more in the New Testament context. But in terms of like what is going on here, okay, so he, notice he says concerned about it, right? Because he can't just be, what's he going to say? Revolt against your master and get killed? No, like that's if it's not an option, it's not an option, you know? Um, uh, but rather it's like, don't obsess about that. Like there's other things that the Lord has for you than that. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's easy for us to say, of course, we who are not in bondage to other people, but, um, you know, how do you pastor a person who does not have a say in their freedom, in their, in their status? And note that here he does say, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. So like, this is not, that's interesting, right? Because it's a little different than his advice to everyone else in this paragraph, like remain in the state in which you were called, right? There he's like, well, in this case, if you can get out of it, get out of it. Like if there's a way, and there were ways in the Greco-Roman world for slaves to become free. Um, And um, so like, it's better to be able to, to be that if you can, um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that, and that's maybe the first word in what the New Testament has to say about that institution. And uh, as, as I said with the Old Testament, it's important not to conflate the Old Testament institution of slavery with what we know as slavery. It's not to say it was, it was great, but there, there were different, there were, there were significant differences between what went on in the Old Testament between what, what and what went on in the New Testament times under the Romans, and then what happened, um, obviously, in the uh, slave trade as it developed um, all over the world in, in later um, in later times, whether whether it's in the Middle East or, or, or in the Europe in by the Europeans and in the Americas and in South America and everything, uh, it's not all the same thing, or, or as it exists today, for that matter. Um, for he who is, and here's the principle, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Okay. So if you're in that situation, um, know that in Christ, what truly matters, you are free. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So, and even if you were free, right? So there, there's a way in which you could think of your salvation in these terms. Um, it, it frees us 
but it also makes us a bondservant. It makes us a bondservant to Christ. You were bought with a price. Still a slave metaphor, right? Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Okay, now he goes on to these relationships, and we see how that this advice now plays into that question. So concerning the betrothed, and remember betrothal is like an engagement, but more formal, like it required a, uh, it required an actual divorce uh, and everything. And, um, you know, so it's a little bit more formal than what we would consider as an engagement. And he says, towards them, I have no command from the Lord. And I take that to mean, as I did earlier in the chapter, that there's not, that Jesus himself does not speak directly to this. Not that Paul is not using apostolic authority or something here. I think I think that's what that means. He says, I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So just because Jesus didn't specifically teach on this, I, I it doesn't mean there's no instruction here. Um, and he says, I think, and he, as he said, as he's already done, he's going to, he notice how he keeps emphasizing he keeps on sprinkling language that makes it clear that he's not commanding people what way they must go. He's he's talking to them about what they what they can, um, what what he thinks is preferable, and that's why he phrases it. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So it's hard to know how specific he's being here. Okay, so. Um, uh, is is he talking about uh, in view of a uh, the present distress? Is he talking about just generally like um, uh, the, you know life? Like life is not that long. Um, is he talking about Christ might return soon? Um, is he talking about um, some kind of very specific situation that of persecution that the Christians are undergoing right now? Um, I think it's probably a combination of life is short and we are, um, uh, there's a lot of people who oppose us. You know, that, that would probably be my best guess as to what he means by that. Um, and he says, it's good for a person to remain as he is. So are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Okay. So don't seek a divorce thinking you're going to be able to better serve God if you only weren't married. Um, uh, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Um, so don't don't go. So again, this is him recommending singleness. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Because remember, he's already told said that for some people, marriage is the best course of option, especially if they can't. Uh, well, in view of their lack of self control, um, and uh, and and here's the thing: the, this principle, and and he mentions it several times in this passage that those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Doesn't mean that they're bad. The things that we deal with because we're married, you know, with one another, raising kids, pleasing a spouse, are bad, uh, and we will return to this in a minute. But they are, in a sense, worldly. Okay, there's 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 troubles that because just because of the way the world is. Um, that in, you know you have additional burdens on your life if you are in a relationship than if you are not. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. Um, this is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. Again, is he talking about life? Is he, does he expect the quick return of Christ? I think, again, it's, it's probably the shortness of life here, um, and especially in view of persecution. 
Uh, From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. It's important here to note what Paul does not mean by this. When he says, for those who have wives, live as though you have none, I don't think he's saying ignore your wife. In fact, what he says in the next paragraph, it makes it clear, very clear that that is not what he means. Um, rather, this is a, a, a matter of shifting priorities and concerns, okay? Um, a, a, any more than, than what he, when he says those who mourn as though they were not mourning, right? Like elsewhere, he says, grieve with those who grieve. Um, but the idea is that life is not about this. And even if you're married, uh, life is not does not center around the marital relationship. Uh, if you are a disciple of Christ, it is supremely important. It is greatly important. But what is supremely important is your allegiance to Christ. And it's more and part of the reason why he recommends singleness is because it is sometimes difficult to figure out what that looks like in the context of a marriage. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, for the present form of this world is passing away. So there's this idea that it's just, you know, the time is short and, and God is on the move and we have work to do. Okay. And so what are you spending your time and your resources towards building a life with your spouse, um, and building the kingdom of God, or are you devoting it totally towards building the kingdom of God? I want you to be free from anxieties. This is where this comes from, this recommendation for singleness. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious. And notice this is a little bit of of an overstatement. He's obviously not saying a married man cannot be anxious about the things of the Lord. But if you look at their lives, a married man, what is his big concern? Again, you have that phrase, worldly things, how to please his wife. And likewise, the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband, right? And the, the thing is, is that your interests are divided then, okay? Um, and so what he, what he says is he wants, he wants to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. And that's why he recommends singleness. Because if you're married, okay, um, then... What does it look like to serve God? Well, it, it looks like to serve God is you put him first and then you put your spouse second, okay? Um, and um, of, But of the relationships in the world and what you give yourself to and what you spend your time doing, your primary responsibility is to have a healthy, godly marriage. And that takes a lot out of a person. Whereas if you're single, you could do whatever you want with your evenings. You could do whatever you want with your weekends, um, you can um, serve the Lord much more in the context of being single than you can in the context of being married. Again, this is not all that Scripture says about this. And again, remember, this is Paul recommending this personally. It is not him laying a command on us. Um, different people are called to different things. But I do think we kind of need to retrieve the calling of singleness in the church, like that the that, you know, having a white picket fence, a wife and, uh, you know, two kids and a dog is not the Christian dream. That's more the American dream. That is not the ideal way to live as a disciple of God. To live as a disciple of Jesus is to live the life that he has called you to. And that very well may be singleness for the sake of the kingdom 
of God. And um, there's, of course, a lot more attached to this, like um, you, uh, like, uh, for example, uh, I've, talking, I've, I've spoken to some people who have really accepted this in their lives, and they will often talk about mourning their singleness or mourning their virginity, that there is a good aspect of life that they miss out on with that, um, but there can be joy and thankfulness in that life. And, um, and indeed, a life that is set on serving the Lord, this can actually be leveraged for great things, as it was in the life of Paul, in the life of Christ, and in the life of many others who have, who have answered this call. Okay, folks, that's it for today. As always, thanks for being with me, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. But until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.